Well, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Rayshep. This is Another Bottle Down. Uh, and we're a production of Co-op Radio in Austin, Texas, and uh, broadcast on 91.7 FM in, in, uh, in the capital city of Texas. And uh, and then we make this podcast afterwards, so it's great that you are tuned in and checking it out, whether it's off of the uh, the website or off of iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show so you get alerts when there's uh, new episodes posted. Um, we've got a really, really interesting talk today. Uh, I had in the co-op studios Noah Ullman, who is the owner of the importer Vinosh Czech, and that's V-I-N-O-Z, Czech, C-Z-E-C-H, of course, like the Czech Republic. And he's uh, pretty much the only one importing Czech wines. Uh, And so he and his wife are, uh, as they put it, the de facto Czech wine experts. So it's going to be, it's a great talk. And I learned so much. I didn't really know what those wines were about. We get into the varieties, we get into how it's it's really very close to Austria. You can drive there in about 40 minutes, he says. So really, really fun stuff. I hope you do enjoy it um, and continue to like us on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Another Bottle Down Radio. Enjoy. Well, great. Um, Noah Ullman, thank you for coming into the co-op studios. Uh, I'd love to... You are a Czech wine importer and a Czech wine guru, uh, and you're here to tell us the story about what Czech wine is about. It, it kind of fits in with the latitude, uh, potentially, of where um, some wine-producing territory can be to a certain extent. Let's start off by talking about the Czech Republic as a whole and 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 where their wine industry is great uh mark thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be here um it's funny we we started bringing czech wines into the u.s about five years ago it's exactly five years ago this december we sold our first case and um it turns out that by default i am the expert in the u.s like my wife and i are number one and two czech wine experts in america um just because we've been at it for right. uh, for as long as we have. Well, that first case is the hardest. First case was, uh, f- yeah, the first case was a good sale, yeah. and uh, and we've really grown from there. We're in eight states now. Uh, wow. Pleased to be here in Texas with New Vintage, and uh, really looking forward to growing with that organization as yes. that grows. Yeah. I um, so you you mentioned the latitude. So the the region where we're talking about right now in the Czech Republic is uh, called South Moravia, and I'll come. I'll come back to that in a sure, second, but yeah. South Moravia um, actually is right on the 49th parallel. And that 49th parallel also goes through some really major wine producing regions, including Burgundy, as example. Yeah, It is traditionally considered the northernmost latitude for quality winemaking. Um, although I do think that that's starting to shift uh, as the climate starts to shift. Yes, yeah. uh, in fact, we're seeing um, some interesting and quite good wines coming out of Poland. And we're seeing some really lovely, uh, particularly sparkling wines coming out of uh, Great Britain. So that we're seeing that kind of slowly shift further and further north, whereas the southern latitudes continue to get hotter and hotter, and it's making it harder and harder to make quality wine there. The The Czech Republic as a country is um, about 20 years old. So it's a very recent country. Even prior to that, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was a construct uh, post-World War One. The wine industry 
in this region and winemaking in this region really transcends political boundaries and recent politics. And you should think more of um, the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire, which is really where these what these wines are all about is this old European history. And and um, I have a, a map I love to show, not great for radio, but there's a map of it's called uh, European Regina in I think it's 1537 that shows Prague as the heart of Europe at the time. Hmm. And um, it's true, the Habsburgs and that empire really ran Europe for six, 900 years, and and the capital cities of Prague and Budapest and, of course, Vienna were really the core. And the wineries that we work with are all much closer to Vienna than they are to Prague. We're about 70 kilometers to Vienna and over 200 kilometers to Prague. So these are oh, really. So this less than an hour, or oh yeah, it's like hour. if you if you if you fly into Vienna, you can be in in uh, Czech wine country in forty minutes. Wow, yeah, that's very good to know. <laughs> I highly recommend it. <laughs> so we've got you know we've got where does this situate? So we, we're talking about um, this forty ninth parallel, kind of the upper border, but there are still still German wine regions that are a little bit kind of even higher latitudes, and the Rieslings, and from the Mosul and whatnot. It, is this on par with uh, some German wine regions, or are we still even a little bit further south? We are a little bit further south than some of those Mosul wine regions, and at, you know you'll appreciate it. as a wine guy those Mosul wine regions are very steep yeah. and they're all southern facing. So they're taking advantage of the sunshine and the long summer days to get right. that exposure and heat from the sun, uh, not necessarily from the climate. That said, all of the quality wine, in fact all the wine in the Czech Republic is coming from south facing slopes, but they don't have that pitch that you get from the Mosul. Yeah, yeah. And and that's how we kind of um, buffer this really cool climate is, is by having a great exposure to the sun and, and, and get all of that. And, and it still has that quality to it. Uh, I think that's important. I also think that one of the things that's really interesting when you compare, let's say, European wines to American wines is uh, knowing what grapes to put where. Mm. So uh, I'm, I grew up in New York, and uh, I think that some of the wines coming out of New York today are really great, particularly the, the wines in the Finger Lakes. Sure. Uh, but I think you know there are other regions of New York where they're trying to plant grapes that have large commercial appeal. Yeah. Let's just say Cabernet Sauvignon. Right. And uh, I, you know, it requires a very particular climate to do good cab. Right. And uh, the Czechs which is great, they're not doing this. They're not ripping up vineyards to plant more Chardonnay and more Cabernet Sauvignon. They're really working with varietals that they know through generation to generation to generation that have worked really well in that region. Absolutely. And so, you know, really kind of pertaining to, even though that this was the center of kind of this European civilization, right, uh, the Austrian wine industry today has kind of grown and maybe overshadowed. Would you consider uh, Czech wine a little bit more related to the Austrian wine industry as opposed to German or as opposed to anything else? Or is it unto itself? Yeah, it's certainly uh, it's certainly closer geographically and stylistically. Right. It's Stylist. closer to Austria than it is to Germany. I, I think a lot of people have described our wines as a bridge between Austria and Alsace, mm. which I, I really like. I'm a fan of both. So right, I think that's right. a nice, nice <laughs> place to be in the middle of that bridge. Um, uh, geographically, you know, the this part of South Moravia shares a border with Austria. So mm -hmm. that great lower Austria Gruner, um, when that was planted by the Romans in the third century, 
that was planted. They didn't. There was no border between sure. Austria and I mean, it's the Danube, right? And that's the reason the Romans were there. They were there to protect the Danube. So they what they what the Romans did is they pushed a little bit further north into what is now the Czech Republic. There's a very interesting geological formation there called uh, the Palava Hill, which is the the epicenter of winemaking in the Czech Republic. And what Palava is is it's the last uh, limestone tooth of the Carpathian Mountains. So it's the westernmost point of the Carpathians. And the value of that tactically is that it gave uh, a good lookout view north across the Moravian Plain to identify marauders coming in from the north to protect the Danube. So when the Romans were there, they wanted to plant wine to of course, yeah. hydrate their troops. And uh, that's when, and I'm forgetting the name of the emperor at the moment, but one of the emperors made an edict where they can plant grapes north of the Alps, and that's when that happened. Wow. That that Moravian plain, by the way, is is really fascinating. Going back to prehistory, the oldest known clay artifact to mankind is this small statue of a female uh, form called the Venus of Vetsanitsa. And it was found not far from this pile of a hill. It's 25,000 years old. And it's, My goodness. And it is the oldest you know, piece of uh, pottery that we have. So culture and art have been in this region you know, far longer than we can even imagine. And I like to think that wine goes along with that. Absolutely, as, yeah. And this, the, the fact that it was this limestone that, that was maybe pushed up and, and limestone, as we know, is great for wine. And uh, maybe the Romans knew that, or maybe that's just where they were because of the protection and the and the and like the strategic aspect to it. But then it worked out really well with wine. And they'll figure that over the centuries. They'll figure that out as far as hey, the wine from this area is doing well. So so there was wine back in the Roman times there. And then uh, so much has happened. I mean, there's so much to talk about as far as the history. Um, I feel like at some point, beer must have taken over. Is that is that maybe what, what really happened? I mean, we think of Czech Republic almost synonymous with, with beer and hops and all so, that. So uh, I'm actually glad you brought that up because it's, it's a very interesting thing. That, as I mentioned, the Czech Republic as a country is only about 25 years old and Czechoslovakia is about 100 years old. The Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia is a, is a construct there are at least four cultures. There are three Czech cultures and the Slovak culture that were amalgamated. And in fact, at some point between World War One and World War II, there's a piece of Ukraine included in Czechoslovakia. So it was kind of an amalgamation of different cultures. The culture to the West, uh, I think, we, which we all think of as synonymous with the Czech Republic, is known as Bohemia. Right. Uh, and beer rules in Bohemia. Uh, and uh, it makes sense because it borders Bavaria in Germany, mm-hmm. great hops-growing land. Right. And when the Czech Republic became a country, the population in Bohemia was significantly, and still is significantly larger than the population in Moravia, which is the eastern part of the country. Mm. Uh, and the eastern part of the country, its capital city throughout the centuries, is, is a, a town called Brno, whereas the capital of uh, Bohemia is Prague. Mm. And in fact, Prague also has not only pil- the invention of, of Pilsner fermentation, Pilsen beer, right? Uh, but it was the it's the ancestral home of Budweiser, for better or worse, it was mm-hmm. the ancestral home of Budweiser, and uh, clearly a beer culture. But Moravia, on the other hand, is 
always been a wine culture. It's so just every, been overshadowed by the by right, the and everybody beer. associates themselves as Moravian instead of you know this greater uh, kind of new construct. When you're in Moravia, you know, and, and in fact, it's a funny thing you bring up. So our, the brand that we that we label our wines with is, is Vinos Czech, V-I-N-O-Z Czech. And what's interesting is that we have a Czech partner, so we kind of vetted this with him. And like, yeah, this is fine, even though it's Moravian. Moravian wine, it makes perfect sense. But some of the Czech community here in the States think this is Bohemian wine hmm. because they view Bohemia as the true Czech and this and not Moravia. So there's there's some nuances to uh to work through. Um but the wines, uh, you know, wi- the wines themselves are are celebrated within the culture, uh particularly in Moravia, but also now in Bohemia. And there's some uh there's some vineyards in Bohemia. They're Ninety-six percent of the wine in the Czech Republic comes from Moravia, but there are a few vineyards around Prague. There's a great if you ever get to Prague, um, one of our favorite things to do is take an, an, a nighttime walk uh, mm-hmm. through Prague Castle, and there's a there's a vineyard on the castle, and it's been there since the castle's been there. Wow! And it's just fabulous. It's a small vineyard, south facing, you know, overlooking the river. Yeah, and it's just it's just beautiful, especially at night. So continuing on with this culture, the wine culture. So so wine is very much part of the culture of Moravia. Does that is there a different cuisine? Is there does wine more so go along with uh, with the food there? And and um, you know what what what's bring us to that to that place? Sure, it's an interesting. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, and one of the things that is is very interesting to me is that uh, these people that I uh, relate to physically, mm-hmm. um, really do have some different cultural norms. So, uh, as an example, Christmas dinner in Moravia is carp. It just seems, you know, I, I would n- list 10 things for Christmas dinner and carp would not be on right. my list <laughs> as the main dish. Um, they eat, uh, they consume soup at every meal. Wow. Soup is a major cultural thing. Lots of root vegetables, of course, uh, the dumplings that they're famous for in the country. Um, really nice Central European, let's say, comfort food cuisine. Sure. A lot of game. Uh, so wild boar and venison and and quail, um, all very typical typical dishes in the menu. In fact, one of the best meals I've had over there was a venison uh, ragu uh, that was uh, – uh, from a deer that was was shot in one of the vineyards we worked oh, wow. with, <laughs> so it was really cool to kind of have that real sense of place as we're actually in the cellar and eating a deer that lived in the area and drinking the wine that grew there. It was right. really spectacular. Can't get better than that. It does. It yeah. was it was a magical moment. <laughs> and great people, of course. And wine should always bring us together with our friends and whatnot. And that's that's why we do this. That's kind of why you know I do the show and and all of that to hear these great stories. It's amazing to hear. And you know, of course, I've never had any anybody who knows about Czech wine on the show. Of course, as you mentioned, there's very few of them in the U.S. Um, give it. Can do you have a little perspective as far as how many wineries there are? I mean, it's it's um, you know not too far away from Austria, but it's unto its own. And I find it fascinating. This you know the the Palava Hill that that. Um, but how many wineries are there? I mean, is it hundreds or is it is it twenty? Yeah. So this is this is a really fascinating thing, and I do believe this has to do with both the culture, uh, kind of being a village culture mm-hmm. and a very tight knit family culture. 
and um, perhaps also the the you know recent 20th century history of communism. Yeah. And I've fact checked this now ten times because it's an unbelievable number to me. Give it. <laughs> there are eighteen thousand registered producers in the country of ten million people. And just to put that in some context, in all of North America, US, Mexico, Canada combined, so that's gotta be four hundred and half a billion people, right. maybe. Yeah. Uh there are nine thousand. So there are twice as many producers in this tiny little ten million person country as there are in all of North America. And you see it everywhere. You see it when you when you people's homes here in the States where they'd have a train room attached to the garage. Right. They have wine cellars. Right. Uh, there's a there's an amazing Well they might have cars in their garage and then over right, there right. they next, have uh, they have wine. Right next it's it's a separate cellar. They're actually designed like our our exporters family home is a um, a home that was built under communism in the eighties. They have a um, fairly typical the driveway goes down underneath the house. And the garage is in some combination of carport slash garage. And then there's a little workroom. And then there's five or six steps down into a room that was designed when the house was built as a wine cellar. Yeah. And there are amphora there and they've got, you know, barrels and, and they make their wine. And it's I asked I asked our exporter how typical this was. He goes, Oh, you know, one in four houses here has this in yeah. their in their home. What's more impressive is that when you go out into the countryside a little bit, uh, people have their family wine cellars, which are these small structures um, that vary in design. Some look like hobbit houses. Mm -hmm. Some look like mausoleums. Some look like garages. Some have peaked roofs. Some have curved roofs. Uh, And I'll be sure to send you some pictures. They are spectacularly beautiful, and they... uh, they really celebrate the wine culture in these enclaves. It's almost like a little campground. Yeah. Uh, and there's lots of these little uh, rows of these wine cellars. And everybody has their own wine. And downstairs is the wine cellar where they make the wine. And upstairs is the long table where you drink wine with friends and family. Yeah, absolutely. So it's so interesting. I mean, it's 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 almost like this preserved culture that uh, maybe had the country advanced um, a little bit more earlier that that you know might have changed or you wouldn't you don't find these large chateaux or you know uh, it almost seems like it's a preserved culture and and sometimes that can be um, almost a, a difficult thing to do business with or um, you know or, or in a sense if you're looking to get these wines out there and they they have this mentality of like oh well we just make the wine that we drink or the, the neighborhood drink and this and that and while it's charming it, it sometimes there's challenges on the business side yeah right? absolutely <laughs> and in full disclosure and clarity we're, we're not importing these wines from these tiny right, little right, right, cellars right. there's no sure. they, they drink it all in fact as a country the Czech reporter the, the Czech Republic is a net importer of wines they mm. they drink all the wine they make and they bring in more from from surrounding countries France Italy Spain uh, wherever so the there are probably about let's say 20 commercial wineries that could okay. support the even the idea of exporting to the US and and to be fair we're still small right. but again we're working with populations here where you know the state of Texas has three times the amount of people as the entire country and they don't have excess of wine uh Mark you know you 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 follow this business very closely 
there's overage of wine in France and Italy and Spain, and it, it creates a market for wine overage where people can spot buy Bordeaux for two euros. They don't want you to know it. I know, but, but it's. I hope I'm not no. revealing any secrets. <laughs> We're to your all transparent. Here. Yeah. Um, but it's a different business model. So when we, the wineries that we work with, um, have to want to export. Yeah. Right. Because they they have a market that they can fulfill locally. So. The wineries that we work with are really uh, take pride in being on uh, recognized wine lists, yeah. placements in in restaurants and in bottle shops and in stores where they have some national presence. Uh, I presume they use this information to support their wines back home as well. Uh, but it's really a um, the first time we got the wines listed on uh, you know in some Michelin star rated restaurants was big news back home. Yeah. Uh, we've submitted the wines for some reviews in, in magazines, which I don't do habitually, but we wanted to kind of put it out there and, uh, you know, some solid 90 point ratings and uh, Eastern European wine of the year in one of the magazines. So that was really great visibility for them. We've had some uh, write-ups in, in publications like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, which definitely gets back to the Czech Republic. And um, the winemakers and the entire industry there is really loves it. They're yeah. they're excited that uh, the product from this small country that they let's say take for granted, right? Because it's just been there their whole lives. They make wine right, right. that is getting you know recognition in the United States is is really a sense of pride for them. It, it's an interesting experience for them to, you know, they 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 could drink all of this wine and and absolutely they want to be recognized. And then for us here, I mean, I'm always searching out for new experiences, new things, you know. And we'll talk about grape varieties in a second here. But um, what is Riesling that's interpreted in a different country with different people in different soils? And you know, I want to I want to taste all of that, and especially with a long culture. Um, or even new cultures. I mean, what are they doing in China and in India and whatnot? But I think in particular with, a, you know, with the wine cultures that have been making wine since the Roman times or whatever, uh, to see how they interpret certain grape varieties or how certain grape varieties have been existing there and in isolation, um, you know, which we'll talk about with the um, uh, Blauer Portugueser, um, a, a grape that's pretty particular there. Uh, it's it's just it's remarkable, and you know the reason that I'm in the wine business is because I want to be brought closer to cultures, and wine wine can do that. And it, was it that part of of the Czech culture that drew you in to think that you wanted to do Czech wine, and uh, you know it had so, to make your mark on you? Yeah. So there there are a couple of reasons why this has been an interesting thing for us. The the first one is I I um I love the wines. Right? I like the product. Yeah. And I've been uh, my wife and I and we're partners. In this business, we uh, we gravitate towards high tone wines. So prior to Czech wines, we were drinking a lot of Alsatian wines and Swiss wines when we could find them. And uh, even if we're drinking Italian wines, we're looking for the highest altitude possible, or you know, really northern uh, up in the Dolomites, and really trying to find uh, wines that are grown in cooler climates. And there are a bunch of reasons for that we can talk about. I, I, actually, I would like you to elaborate on that. Just, uh, you know, high tones, I think, of flavor, but you're saying that they're coming from high altitudes as well or co cooler climates or maybe marginal climates. Uh, uh, yeah, crisper, brighter, uh, acid-driven, 
in my opinion, more elegant wines, right? So you, you, you know, right? So the, the, the winemaker's choice, winemakers have a few choices. They're, they can choose what to plant. Right. They can choose when to harvest. And they can choose what to do in the cellar. And I think that when you're working in a climate that's marginal, I kind of like that word, um, because you can't grow anything anywhere, anytime. You have to be very selective about when you grow and when you harvest and when you pick the grapes. You want to get them before the frost, but you want them also to be as ripe as possible. So the, the vehicle that they have is sugar in the grape to either convert into alcohol or not to convert to alcohol, right? It's kind of the line. So uh, these wines tend to be a little bit lighter in alcohol. We're looking at 11, 12, 13. 13 is probably our top. I think we might have one that's 13.5, but there's no possibility of getting a 15 you know, percent fruit bomb right. out of this region. Right. So when I say high tone, I kind of mean those brighter, crisper, uh, in my opinion, more refreshing yeah. um, wines in both red and white varietals. Um, so I, stylistically, there was something for me. Right. And, and I, I want to go one step further a little bit with, um, you mentioned red and whites. I think our conversation was almost, I think everybody in their mind had white wine, yep. uh, on their mind, but you say red and white, and that's a really important factor as far as acidity and freshness in red wine, uh, is, is, is something lovely and it's more food friendly. And I, I like the way that you describe that in terms of higher tone instead of sometimes people say, Oh, acid, that that's probably not good. But if you were to talk about a higher tone, red wine, et cetera, that might be more attractive. I, uh, you know, what's interesting is that it, this business is fascinating because there are people like us who are in the business where you can have a very in-depth conversation about nuances and details. And then there are people that just love wine. And there's, there's, they, they kind of know what they like, but they're willing to try new things. This idea of cold climate wine was new to somebody who knew something about wine, but yeah. he never considered what's a, what do you mean cold climate wine? I'm like, well, you know, wines that are grown in cooler climates. Cause I, you know, I never thought about it. Yeah. Um, one of my best examples for this is the difference between Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio. Yeah. Right. right so right. Pinot Grigio tends to come from Italy, tends to come from the valleys and tends to be high volume. Uh, Pinot Gris, the exact same grape uh, grown in the hills of Germany or in France, is a completely different experience. Absolutely. And, and we would say, you know, if you're kind of new to wine and you like these these fresh wines, uh, the whole wine world is exploring more marginal. They're kind of pushing the boundary either in the southern hemisphere south. I was just tasting wines from the Mayeco in Chile, which is a the, the really far south. And even they're going even further south than that into the Austral uh, areas or in Patagonia. They're pushing further in search for these cooler climate, more marginal wines. And for you, I mean, the Czech Republic, it's there. It is there. And right. it's been there. It, it, one of the benefits is, is that it's been there for such a long time in such a tough climate to grow right. grapes that they've really identified the best grapes for the best regions. Uh, although I applaud Chile going further south and further up in altitude. When I drink Italian wines, I uh, southern Italian wines, I try to go as far up Mount Etna as possible, you know, to kind of get that experience, uh, which I highly recommend. And in fact, to your listeners, uh, go into your favorite bottle shop and tell them you're looking for some cool climate wines. Right. 
they will be very happy to find you right. a selection of great bottles. Absolutely, because those, those are kind of, I think that those are for folks who taste a lot of wines or drink a lot of wines, um, and in particularly tasting, you know, you could be tasting these warm climate cabs or Syrahs or whatnot, and then you have this cool climate. Um, or Czech. Or, or Saint Laurent, <laughs> yeah. Saint Laurent from, from and we'll, we'll talk about yeah. the, and then it's just like, ah, it's like refreshing. It's, it's, it's a relief to the palate. Can we um can we delve into some of the grape varieties? Sure. That, that um and we'll maybe speckle in some some stories and some uh you know descriptions of of the producers, um and and your trajectory as well. Um, if if the Czech Republic had a or or Moravia, if if there was a grape variety that was kind of the the flagship, what would it be? So this is up for debate. Okay. And I I've been uh, having this discussion with our Czech partners and colleagues for some time now. And uh, in my opinion, uh, and part of this opinion as an importer, it's a there's a commercial decision here, right? I need a grape that's got enough volume where we can really make a mark the same way. Uh, you know, Malbec has made a mark out of out of uh, South America, and Gruner has made a mark out of Austria, and Sauvignon Blanc has made a mark out of New Zealand. There's a people kind of identify these regions with particular grapes that have volume capability. Um, in addition to a marginal climate and a very select amount of land where they're capable of growing grapes in the Czech Republic, one of the requirements for joining the EU is that you had restrictions on the ability to plant more vineyards. I believe this was in place for uh, France and Germany and Italy and Spain to make sure that other places that join the EU in the future, particularly in warmer climates, didn't you know, just make massive vineyards. Never really could be an issue for the Czech Republic, but even at this stage, they can't grow. They can't actually plant more vines. Hmm. Uh, which by default makes all of Czech wine sustainable, right? You can't, you can't bomb a vineyard with pesticides and, you know, <laughs> nuke it and expect, you know, just move next door. There's right. nowhere to move to. So right. it's all generational sustainable uh, by definition. The, um, so one of the grapes that I'm a fan of yeah. is called uh, Ravonner. It's also known as Muller Turgau. It, it was a, it was a developed by a physician in, Switzerland in the 1800s, maybe the 1700s. Um, and it's a really lovely uh, white wine grape. It is uh, Muller Turgau, which we call Ravonner. And uh, Ravonner is an alternate name for this grape. A lot of grapes have, I'm sure your listeners know, tons of alternate names. Right, right. Ravonner is often used when Muller Turgau is grown to be designed as a single varietal and not as a blend. Uh, but Muller Turgau or Ravonner has been grown in Central Europe for hundreds of years. Right. And it's the, currently the number two planting in Germany behind Riesling. And for a long time, it was the number one planting. It's, um, it is one of the primary grapes that goes into uh, blends such as Liebfraumilch. Yeah. Um, so Muller Turgau or Ravonner grown in the Czech Republic has some exceptional qualities. It's highly aromatic. Uh, beautiful on the nose of uh, it's floral with honeysuckle. The mid palate has very strong stone fruit, fresh peach and apricot. Yeah. And then as we we're mentioning earlier, the acidity in that wine keeps it bright. So this wine that's got some sense of what would typically be a much sweeter wine, like yeah. leaning towards a Moscato type of thing. Right. Isn't it finishes bright and clear and refreshing and, 
your mouth is watering for another sip. It's really this beautiful wine. Yeah, I mean, that, that if I can chime in with, with my impression of it, because this was the first time I had, uh, earlier today, the first time I had a Mueller Turgau from the Czech Republic. And, uh, I, you know, I love, I like Mueller Turgau for a lot of reasons, but you're exactly right that it places you in this family of aromatic grape varieties, Muscat, Gewürztraminer, Viognier, um, Torrantes, maybe, uh, you know, these, these, these grape varieties where you get beautiful floral components, maybe clove and interesting sp spices and, um, and potpourri and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm critical of a lot of these aromatic grape varieties uh, because they, they lack an acidity. And that's the wonderful thing about Mueller Turgau is that it, you, you get this beautiful nose and you you just kind of fall in love with it. And then in the mouth, it just, you know, you're still refreshed by it. And, and I certainly got this beautiful balance in this wine. And we should say, so, so the wine, the, the, the Rivaner, the Rivaner that you have here, what's the producer's name and uh, the one that we tasted? Yeah. So um, th this producer is one of the larger producers in the Czech Republic. It's a great story. It was one of these, uh, it was a, it was a chateau. Uh, it was a family home for the Liechtenstein family. And uh, when they were booted out of Europe, that was kind of taken over. And it was always, has always been a winery or have had vineyards associated with it. Uh, during communism, this is a, one of the facilities that was taken over by the state. Mm. And it is a great success story of post-communism private capitalism. So it was purchased by uh, a, a family-led co-op yeah. of people from the village that were managed to put this together. And they bought this winery associated with this spectacular chateau, which is the chateau itself is still owned by the state, but now it's the Czech state instead of right. uh, the Soviet <laughs> state, uh, which the, the chateau itself is a tourist destination. In fact, there's an interesting point about this, uh, this region. This is the only place in the world where there are two UNESCO World Heritage Sites right next to each other that mm. are abutting. It's the Gardens of Europe. Um, if you are if your listeners are ever traveling to Vienna or Prague in the spring, fall, summer time, right. uh, highly recommend going here. It's beautiful. You can ride a bicycle and ride through the gardens. It's really Amazing. Um, landscaping on a grand scale. It's beautiful. And... Um, so this Chateau Valtizza is the producer. And I should point out that what, what my wife and I decided to do in the very early stages was in order to create an awareness for Czech wines in the U.S. market, since we're the only ones bringing them in, we created an umbrella brand uh, called Vinos Czech using the artwork of Alphonse Mucha. Mucha, uh, for those who don't know, he is a an, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s Art Nouveau artist, one of the real leaders of that mm -hmm. movement along yeah. with people like Gustav Klimt and they um he was born in the Czech Republic actually in Moravia his father was a Moravian winemaker so it really seemed nice to kind of pair them up but all of our wines come from producers that are uh we simply label them for export so the wines that we bring to the U.S. are exactly the same wines that they're drinking in the Czech Republic today yeah. under their own producer labels we don't try to hide the producer you can identify the producer on the capsule uh, produces on the cork and on the back of the bottle, but you can recognize our wines by the beautiful uh, Art Nouveau artwork on the labels. I love it. I mean, it's it's a way of giving kind of this this consistent face to to Czech wines, and even though they might be coming from different 
different vineyards, different wineries, et cetera. Correct. Nice. So, so uh, Chateau Valtita is uh, now owned by two brothers of the, the founding father, uh, really nice guys who um, uh, put out a consistently high quality product. And uh, they, they work with, you know, you asked about this conversation started, this segment of the conversation started with which varietals. What's fascinating is that because there's so many different wineries and they've been making wine here for so long, they don't have a clear focus. There are dozens, if not scores or hundreds of grapes grown within the Czech yeah. Republic. And um, there's no real dominant kind of plot. So uh, Muller Turgau is the most widely planted, but that's like less than 10% of total plantings. Um, right alongside that is Gruner and Gruner Veltliner, uh, uh, you know, from a geographic perspective is perfect for this region. We're bordering lower Austria. I can literally throw a rock from some of our vineyards into Austria where it's <laughs> right on the border. Right. Um, and Gruner does great in this region. I do find that the Czech Gruner, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, uh, but I thought that, that I think that the Czech Gruner dollar for dollar drinks like a more expensive Austrian Gruner. It's a little bit softer, it's a little bit rounder, it's a little bit more delicate. It's not quite as austere. Um, not to say I'm not a fan of those, you know, one liter pop tops of Gruner that you mm -hmm. can get. Yeah, <laughs> right? <yeah>. Like <laughs> it's a great picnic <laughs> wine in the summer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think what, what really, I'm almost reluctant to, to mention this, but we had, we had talked uh, that there is almost this thread of commonality of, you know, um, th this concept of minerality, you know, that, that, and whether it's, you know, actually um, just a result of the climate, of be this being a marginal climate and the, and the soils and the fact that they've been making wines there for a long time, um, I, I did get this really just interesting non-fruit component that that was and the Gruner I think w was lovely um, but there was a lot of other interesting things happening in in all of the wines uh, which, which I thought very 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 intriguing which is cool it is cool and it's <laughs> a ton of fun and I think you know um, I'm sure you've you've mentioned this to your listeners before in addition to the you know the history of the wine the region the winemaker um, I take the role of importer uh, very seriously, right? Yeah. It's it's kind of it's a reflection of of uh, the importer uh, is making selections based upon their personal preferences and and taste. And my wife and I taste every wine we bring in multiple times. We try to taste it there. We get it shipped over to see how it handles in transit. We taste it here. Uh, we have a lot of the wines are kind of pre-screened by our export partner. Um, so there's a, uh, there's a greater, what I'm getting to is this, there's a greater range of Czech wines than you tasted today because it's filtered by our palate. Right. Um, right. some are much sweeter. They have beautiful dessert wines. Uh, there are some that are funkier. Uh, they, there are a, a group of people focused on just natural wines in the Czech Republic. Um, I think they're delicious. Our experience is that they're commercially very difficult mm -hmm, because natural mm -hmm. wines don't keep and it's yeah very i love natural i love drinking yep. natural wine that's not a business i'm in a position to be in at the right, moment right with that kind of risk um so i think it's uh i think that if if you haven't already i'll give a, a, a plug to the back label if if your consumers your, your listeners are enjoying a wine 
um, take a moment to turn around the back of the label and see who imported that wine and then identify that importer next time you're in the bottle shop. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, just as far as the importer as the critic, as far as uh, this filter and and um, whether it's French or Italian. Uh, I used to sell a lot of wine and, and um, folks would come, you know, come to me and say, hey, I like this wine and I like this wine. And I, I would always snicker that it's like, oh, well, it's the same importer. Right. You They're know, both you, Kermit Lynch. Or, yeah, right. right. You just match up in, in your preferences. Um, and, and so it's cool that you're trying to do that uh, almost as, you know, the sole importer of, of Czech wines. And, and so uh, it might almost be easy to leave that aside and just say, hey, we're going to bring in anything that we can sell. Um, but it still has to have uh, this mark of what you find attractive in wine. Uh, yeah, that's it's that's right. really important on yeah. a whole bunch of different levels that sure. we need to feel good about what we're selling. We need to want to drink what we're bringing in. Uh, so I, I people often ask me what my favorite is, and it's like asking, you know, do I have a favorite child? Right. I like all the wines for different reasons at different times of totally. the day or the year or you know whatever. Yeah. Um, so back to varietals. The, yeah. The, the, so between Gruner and and Muller Thurgau or uh, Ravonner, we're looking at, you know, let's say high teens of total production, um, okay. and then there's a fairly long tail of other wines. Gewurztraminer is up there, um, but I wanted to mention Palava because I mentioned Palava as the as the hill, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also a, a a VOC or an AOC or you know a, a controlled appellation. Um, a PDO in in the EU, right? Okay, right. right. Um, of a grape called Palava, and it is a spectacular grape. It is. Uh, is it red or white? It's white. Okay. It's uh, incredibly aromatic. Done well. It is mind blowingly good because uh, it has that acidity and that those those great aromatics. Um, we have yet to find one that's a viable import wine. The mm. ones that we think are really great are simply too expensive. Right. I know. Noah, you had me like looking through my notes here. No, like I didn't there. taste one. Not there. Uh, <laughs> and the ones that are that are at a price point where we think Americans would take a shot on a Czech wine they've never heard of before, right, or a grape they've right. never heard of before, right. um, they don't they don't exemplify right. the, the real attractiveness of the well grape. stay tuned you might find you might find one when we find one we will definitely yeah. bring it in All right. i'll make sure to get one for sounds you. good um and then and then what do we have so um there there's also sauvignon blanc we, we, the, that is you know everybody knows sauvignon blanc from all over what attracts you to sauvignon blanc from the czech republic so specifically this this sauvignon blanc uh a we, we loved it i just thought yeah. it was it's a beautiful wine and what we really loved about this wine is that it it's you know I've had Sauvignon Blanc from around the world and it was it's clearly Sauvignon Blanc but mm-hmm. it yeah. also is clearly not New Zealand and it's clearly not Loire and it's clearly not California so it's really interesting to taste a grape that's so familiar but it's like you're looking at it from a different angle right, uh, right. which is a ton of fun so that's what I really like about that Sauvignon Blanc and and frankly it's a um I've used it successfully as a sales tool to demonstrate the world-class quality of the wine. It's a beautiful wine, and it's it's got a real sense of terroir. Right. So right. I think that's um, um, I think that's lovely. I I should point out that one of the interesting things about the history of the Czech Republic is reflected in the wine varietals. So uh, I believe it's this year. This year is the five five hundredth birthday 
of King Charles. And as Americans, we don't know or care who King Charles was, <laughs> but he was the first and perhaps the only Holy Roman Emperor of Czech Slavic descent. Hmm. So um, 500 years ago, there was a man who ruled the majority of Europe, clearly the most powerful person in the world, mm -hmm. who was Czech and ran that from Prague. He ran the Holy Roman Empire from Prague. Part of his territory, including you know all of Eastern Europe, good chunks of Northern Italy, most of Spain, uh, included Burgundy in France. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, 500 years ago, we saw some Burgundian grapes travel throughout this empire and this region. So I, I mentioned this because we talked about Sauvignon Blanc and it's kind of thought of as a French grape. Um, this is all happens before France is France and before Germany is Germany and before the Czech Republic is the Czech Republic. And, right. you know, these are all about much smaller villages and regions and people, um, which is one of the cool things, I think, about wine is that it brings it down to that village level at some point. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, so there's there's some really nice Pinot Noir in the Czech Republic. There's some really nice Pinot Gris. Uh, there's other grapes that we think of as French grapes, and there's some grapes that we think of as more exotic, uh, esoteric, because Napoleon, as you know, then kind of curtailed grape production in France. So there right. was focus based upon the region that you're in, yeah. and that didn't happen in other parts of the world. So uh, a good example of that is a grape called Saint Laurent, which is pretty rare in the States, not super rare in Europe. But it kind of drinks like a Pinot. Uh, yeah, I thought it was you know it was showing beautifully today. It was really it's lovely. Amazing. So uh, you know, I, my only reference for Saint Laurent is really the um, the Austrian versions of it, and um, and I, I guess that there's two major you know Austrian red grapes uh, other than you know Pinot Noir, but we see Zweigelt and Saint Laurent, and mm -hmm. and and Saint Laurent Blaufrankisch is and also Blaufrankisch, yeah, 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 for sure. And so, but Saint Laurent. Has has like this Pinot character, but then also a lot more spiciness and raciness, and that's it's kind of um, it's kind of a Pinot Noir that's that's been a bad boy, you know. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I think that's a good that's a good description. And and you get that here too. I mean, there's it, it's lighter in color, but there's there's this you know there's this beautiful red fruit, delicate, but then there's this touch of spiciness, which is really attractive. And I bet it's a great food pairing, it, um, you know, with like your with your filet, filet mignon or something like that. It's a real fun wine. And exactly with that, with a, you, I wouldn't pair it up with a really heavy, uh, like a ribeye, but it's great with a filet mignon. Yeah, That's absolutely. Kind of perfect. Yeah. And you had mentioned Blar Portuguesa earlier, which is a fascinating, fascinating grape. It's um, so <laughs> nobody really knows. And I, I tend to uh, be a very curious person. So I did mm -hmm. research this out and I, nobody really knew why it was called Portuguese. There seems to be no connection to Portugal at all. Um, but no matter which language you're in, the grape is blue Portuguese, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the Czech is actually Modri Portugal. Uh, we use the common Germanic with a Blauer Portuguese. Uh, there's a, there are some others, but it's always some form of blue Portuguese. So nobody really knows why. Jancis Robinson did a bunch of research on this particular grape, and she concluded that there's a possibility the merchant that made this grape famous was Portuguese. Mm, okay. Uh, but it originates from what is now northern Serbia. And what I love about this grape is that it has all these qualities we were talking about in the whites and in the Saint Laurent, but at a different elevated level. It's, uh, it's incredibly lightweight. Um, but it's got 
depths of complexity, which, you know, my, my palate is good. Uh, my wife's palate is significantly better. So mm-hmm. if I say, oh, I taste dark berries, she'll be like, that's cassis, you know. Right, right. Or I, I think it's spice. She's like, that's all spice. And, you know, so she's right. able to identify the category. Go in, one right? step further. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, that one has like four, maybe five layers of complexity. And a wine that doesn't have a lot of heft, it's complicated. It's really yeah. this kind of wild, wild grape. And it's, I think it's all about the terroir with this wine. So we visited the winery. It's one of the, um, I believe it, that, that particular site is one of the highest elevations where wine is grown within the Czech Republic. And when we got out of the car, my wife was like, she took a deep breath in. She's like, I smell the Blauer Portugueser. Like she can smell it in the air in this winery. And, um, you know, she got down her hands and knees and she's sniffing rocks trying to figure out where it's come from. Is this holistic kind of notion of this winery, just this vineyard smelled like these grapes, which have a fairly distinct taste and smell. So what's, you know, that's one side of kind of the the geology and and geography. The history on this is also as interesting. um, This winery that we're at was, it was on the site where Napoleon put an end to the Holy Roman Empire in the Battle of the Three Emperors, the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805. Uh, and it's rumored that Napoleon sent wine back from Moravia to Paris as a as a spoil of victory. Uh, so the history there is really fascinating. Yeah. It's get a real interesting sense of place when you're there. And then, um, wasn't the Benedictine monks it starts with a C? Cistercian. This, thank you. The Cistercian monks, uh, the the Cistercian nuns actually planted this winery back in the oh, wow. 15th, 16th century. Wow. Um, when this was all part of the Holy Roman Empire right, and they were right. you know, migrating around. So it was started by the Cistercian nuns, yeah. um, the, the vineyard there. And it's, um, it's just such an amazing, to be in the modern Czech Republic and kind of trying to tick your, tick your timeline back right. 500 years <laughs> is just, it's mind blowing. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. And that, that is, um, you know, that's one of those very special moments with wine where you, you're, you have the sense of place and you have the sense of history and you have a, a, a fluid in a glass that is mystifying to you. And you, there's all this additional context around it that you can't figure out. It's it's the reason I love this business. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm with you there. If you're just tuning in, I'm with Noah Ullman, who uh, is an importer of Czech wines. And his uh, company uh, is Vinozi Czech Wines. And they're all from Moravia in the southeastern part of the Czech Republic. And then you can see the producer on the back label. Um, it's great to have him here in the studio. We have a few minutes left. Um, what, so how many producers are part of the Czech Z, uh, I'm sorry, the Vino Z, um, kind of portfolio? How are, who, how many are you dealing with? Just to give us perspective. We, we actively work with, uh, about a half dozen and we have about, you know, let's say 10 in the wings. Okay. Uh, there's, uh, it, it's interesting because of how much, how quickly, how limited the wine is there, how quickly it sells. We can go over on a tasting trip in, let's say, March, and if we drag our feet a little bit and don't place an order until May, it's mm. gone. You yeah. know, <laughs> and you know, we kind of we have to. We're very small. It's me and my wife. You know, family run business, so right. we we make our bets on the wines that we think are going to move. We want to vet it with our distribution partners, and our sales partners. So sometimes we can't 
place the bet while we're there and we right. want to especially after tasting all day so we want to really think about it yeah. and come home so there are a few wineries that we'd love to do more business with and we just our timing has been off right um there are you know lately because we've been building some nice relationships with some of these wines and these brands we've extended our offering our skew offering with um fewer wineries just to be a little more focused mm -hmm. um, we're learning as we go in this business we we when we started we had we thought we needed and wanted a bigger portfolio we had about right. 22 24 wines in our book mm -hmm. um, and we've cut it in half to be focused on selling more of fewer wines and really creating awareness because what would happen is that um, uh, you know realistically we're only gonna get so many slots on a wine list <laughs> right, or in a right. bottle shop right to put check wine and we want to put our best foot forward. And we were finding that people were willing to take a risk on uh, a region they weren't aware of mm -hmm. and learn something below a certain price point. And we, you know, some of our wines were priced a little bit higher than that. So we've, we've balanced that out. We have a handful of higher price wines now that are mostly wine list wines. And then we're trying to identify the very best price to quality ratio we can get. So, and then do you um, do you kind of pinpoint certain producers who are doing certain grape varieties particularly well, or it's just a, on a basis on a on a wine per wine per producer basis? Yeah, so it's it's on a wine producer basis, but there are things that we look for. Yeah. Um, I'm still looking for that palava that we can market commercially. Right. There is a uh, a really cool varietal uh, called Cabernet Moravia which is a creation uh, that, that there are three viticulture schools in this tiny little country. And <laughs> one of those schools created a uh, uh, good cold resistant crossing of Cab Franc, which is one of my all time favorites and Zweigel, uh, which as you mentioned as an you know, Austrian uh, leading red. And uh, it's spectacular, right? It's got that, that herbaceousness of the Cab Franc mellows out that kind of citrusy punchiness of the Zweigel. It is a spectacular wine. Uh, and is that, I've, I've not heard of that. Is that only no, found so the, in it's Czech Republic? Only in the Czech Republic. It's still less than 2% of total plantings. The wine we brought in, um, there were like 1,400 bottles made of this, and we took <laughs> most of them. And we, um, we haven't been able to find uh, a, a new one. So we're still looking for a new Cabaravia, as an example. There are, there are portfolio items we look to flesh things out. We'd yeah. like to bring in a really great, this is, they make fabulous rosé. Rosés, mm. we'll have rosé next year uh, yeah. of at least one or two varietals. Um, looking at possibilities for, for sparkling wine. Love to bring in a great dessert wine. I think dessert wine is overlooked. It's one of my favorite things to drink. Um, there's market conditions and pricing that make that difficult. Sure. Well, you've got Hungary, you know, being, um, you know, also quite cool climate yep. and, and, um, and wonderful. And so is the sparkling wine, you know, sparkling wine takes a bit more technology maybe, or a bit, a, a few more pieces of equipment. Um, uh, sometimes not necessarily, but, um, uh, do they have kind of the, is there a, a culture of sparkling wine? Is it a, is there it, is. Cause so I would imagine if it's northerly and cool, that, that sounds like a great, there should be some nice, yeah. nice bubbly. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, there is a culture of sparkling wine. They, um, um, they're, you know, it's not, it's not champagne sure, to be yeah. fair. Uh, but they're in a kind of Prosecco Cava category that sparkling wine in the Czech Republic is it, they use the Germanic sect. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a large brand called Bohemia sect, mm -hmm. um, which kind of owns the bulk market, much like, uh, Corbel would yeah, here right. of note, little tangent here. 
Uh, Corbell was founded by two Czech brothers that came over. So, That's right. Yeah, yeah Czech right. company. Okay. Um, so, uh, the, but there are pockets of really interesting sparkling wines. The the market actually being an importer is for sparkling wine is very different than um, still wine. The U.S. government treats it differently. There are different tariffs. There are different rules of sparkling wines. That's right. Uh, but I I like bubbles, so it'd be nice to bring one in. <laughs> right, absolutely. And I've, and 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 folks in Austin, Texas, really like really like bubbles too. So we would love to have them. Um, well, hey, any 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 um, final thoughts? I mean, as far as where it's going. We have some political stability in the Czech Republic for a little, a little bit now, right? Is that helping things out? Are there are there wineries modernizing? Is there um, is that that dichotomy between traditional producers, modern producers, and 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 where's the industry going? Yeah, that's a great question. So I um, the the Czech you know one of the things I really love about this country is that this is a this is a modern country that was, you know, modern NATO country, UN, um, uh, EU country that was the first president they elected was a poet and a playwright. You know, it's not, it, they come from a different headspace than we do, um, or other, you know, kind of more structured, right. Western countries, maybe. Yeah, I'm trying not to use the word Western, but yeah, yes. It's a, I, I can't imagine the U.S. electing a poet and a playwright, right? You know, for anything, but right. <laughs> but that's what they did, and he's revered. Uh, Vlachov Havel is is still revered to this day. Um. So, the Czech Republic joined the EU about ten years ago, and I think uh, when that happened, the next generation of of winemakers or people in wine families uh, went to France, Germany, Spain, right. Portugal, yeah. the U.S., Australia, wherever they wanted to go, picked up modern winemaking techniques and brought them home. Uh, prior to that, one of the winemakers we work with, uh, his name is Dr. Miklowski. He um, he and, and his mentor, uh, who passed away just a few years ago, um, really began the modernization of the Czech wine industry and, and have now extended that service that they offer to other ex-Soviet bloc countries. So they're, they're doing work in places like Moldova and Georgia and um, really helping them bring their wines to be world-class. Um, a lot of it has to do with technology. Yeah. So, um, you know, stainless steel tanks, temperature controlled. Uh, they, they tend to culture yeast from samples that are taken from the vineyards, but it's not wild yeast. I prefer wild yeast, but it's, you know, that's, they're really focused on making sure that they've got the right quality product first. Well, sometimes it takes that, that modernization and, um, maybe to be more technical to then realize that, Hey, I can be a little bit more natural here or, you know, right. there's, there, there might be like this curve situation, um, where, where people, people figure that out and they wind up coming back to some more traditional and things, but they do it in a new light and with more, uh, education and knowledge. Then they're using this for a baseline. Right. And I think it's great. And the, I think the product shows that it's really, they're clean, bright, fresh, right. crisp, uh, delicious wines. So for us, um, opportunities like this are really great. We love to share the yeah. experience. Um, we, we hope that your listening uh, audience will go out and ask their favorite bottle shops or go find Czech wines in a wine list somewhere and taste right. them and tell their friends. Right. Um, 
we're in eight states now nationally and, and would hope to expand one or two more next year and one or two more after that and kind of slowly build, slowly build this business. Out. Right on. So, so Noah, you know, you're, um, you're fighting fighting a tough battle, you know. It, it, um, you know, really telling the story of of a region that's that's not very well known. Uh, can folks find more information on your website, or is there where are there resources yeah. to kind of learn a little bit more? We talked <clears throat> about a few producers. There's there's just not time to talk about every single producer, but you know, where if folks are interested in Czech wine, what, so, what yeah, Google Google is our friend. So if you Google Czech wine, uh, we should come up one, two, or three, depending okay. upon the search. Uh, and again, Vino Z Czech wines. It's, uh, if I was going to get technical, it's it's uh, it's Vinoš, Vinoš Czech, but everyone in America will understand it as Vino Z Czech. So no, we want to we we be proper. <laughs> we want to be proper. I apologize. No, no, it's good. Vino Z Czech is the way people will recognize it. The Czechs would pronounce that Vinoš, Vinoš Czech. Vinoš Czech. Um, so the, the Wikipedia page is good, actually, yeah. and they list out the varietals uh, and the total plantings. Uh, the other page that will come up is the official Czech wine website, and they have, as I, I mentioned earlier, the Chateau Valtica. Um, if anyone is traveling to this region, the Chateau itself is mm -hmm. the state-owned, beautiful historic building museum, uh, but it houses the wine salon of the Czech Republic where they take the 100 best wines of the year mm -hmm. and put them on display for people to sample. And it's it's like the equivalent of seven bucks to go in there. It's the 100 best wines. And right, you can basically right. drink as much as you want. And right. uh, that's a great experience. That's at Chateau Valtica in, in Val the town of Valtica. And they have a website there. They're the official site. And then we're usually number three. Right. Um, but you know, this is a, this is a close knit, um, business and industry. If someone's on our website and they're looking for something, have a question, yeah, email, send, right? Yeah, absolutely. Send yeah. us an email. Well, we'll try to post, um, you know, uh, maybe a map or so, um, or, or at least some links to, to your website on our blog. Um, and, uh, and, and any way that we can provide more information on, on cool, marginalized, uh, wine regions. And <laughs> new discoveries. New discoveries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. New wine from the old world is a, is a and that, that's a great, great slogan. And, and, and being part of the EU, you know, hopefully when they, when they joined, you know, they had a little bit of EU dollars to kind of help their, their online image and maybe do an official map and that sort of thing. So that's interesting. I, uh, I, I've asked about that because there is EU money uh, available. EU does support wineries. Yeah. Uh, they have, up to this point, used all that money into and invested it in production capabilities. Mm. They wanted yeah. to make sure the product is world class before they started marketing it. And that's completely fair. And, yeah, and, 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 and that's that's the first step. And then, you know, regions like Greece or something that that now they're kind of uh, big on the on the on the uh, telling the story around around the country and the world and whatnot. Um, Noah Ullman, it, it was a pleasure to have you here right, and, and great me. meeting you. And um I, I really I, I'm I'm very uh, happy that you're taking on this endeavor of promoting Greek uh, Czech wines and um, and the quality is there. So I'm really happy for you that you found the producers that do that interesting varieties. And it's a, it's a fun time. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And uh, it's it's a real pleasure, a delight, really, to share these wines with, yeah. with the, the community. And of now that you're now US. that you're in Austin, you'll uh, probably have to come here every once in a while I'd to, be happy uh, to, to do to tastings it. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all right. Noah Ullman from um, Vinos Czech, uh, Vinos Czech Wines.
Uh, did I do it right? That, that was that perfect. Okay, Vinos Czech Wines uh, visiting us in Austin, Texas. And this is Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM and koop.org. All right, that's a wrap. <laughs>